0: Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. I began a series uh, last weekend um, on the topic of why. I don't know what it was like for you as, as a parent, but that's a question that drove me nuts. And I, I still, we get that question constantly. Kids just have this desire to know why. And, and driving along and I ask a question, you answer it, why? And then you answer that, why? And it just carries on this, this thing of why. I reckon it's one of the most powerful questions we can ever ask. One of the reasons I think that very few people talk about Jesus with others is fear. And a big part of that is fear that someone will ask you a question that you can't answer. One of the reasons we often fear that is sometimes we don't have a lot of answers. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 says this. Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. I guess that's the heart of this series that I began. Always be ready to explain the hope that we have. There's some layers, I guess, in that. Are we living the kind of life where someone might ask us why we believe and do what we do? Do we actually have hope inside us? Are we ready to explain it? I'm not setting out to make you feel bad today about what you don't know, but to ask you, to, to encourage you to ask a profound question. And then seek an answer for yourself. And that question is why. As an illustration I've used a few times in this church and I want to use it again this morning in case you weren't here or you've forgotten, but sometimes we approach Christianity like it's a bag. And when we've got our bag or a backpack or in this case a lovely leather satchel that my mother-in-law bought me, and when we come to faith in Jesus Christ we begin attending church maybe it's through youth ministry or kids ministry where we're told a whole lot of things we're told we need to read our bibles so so we pop our bible in our backpack and we, we're told we should give so we put our wallet in there and we're we're told we should attend church the so church goes in our backpack and we, we're told all these things that we need to do in order to be a Christian I'm not wrong am I and so we get this backpack, and over time it gets pretty full of things because of all these things that people like me tell you that it means to be a Christian. And, and we're carrying this backpack around, and then at some point we realise how heavy this backpack really is. And, and it gets a little bit uncomfortable, and, and it starts to rub on our sunburn, and, 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 and like we're looking around, and, and, and most of our friends aren't carrying backpacks, why have We got a backpack and they haven't got a backpack. And Do I really need this backpack? Why does it need to weigh so much? And so we we get our backpack and and we open our backpack up and we we begin to look at all the things in it. And we go, well, I don't know why that's in there. So we take it out. Find someone, I don't know why that's in there. So we take it out. And over time, if we don't understand why things are in our backpack, we begin to take these things out and pretty soon we're left with an empty backpack. We've got a form of religion empty of relationship. And the heart of that is not understanding why we do what we do. And part of that is is people like me, pastors and leaders sometimes it's our fault I realise now that I spent way too many years as a youth pastor and loved every moment of it but if I could have my time again as a youth pastor I'd probably do things a little bit differently I would take the time to explain why a lot more than tell them what now the context of this particular series isn't why we read our Bible and why we need to give and why we need to attend church. The heart of it is why. Why do we believe certain things? Do you believe it because I told you? If you do, that's so great. You're such good church people. And I love you. But it's not enough. I wouldn't believe it just because I said it. I don't believe it. Nice. No, no, that's not true. I think the greatest thing you can do is ask the question, why? Why is that the case? Why has the pastor said that? Why does that article I read said that? Why does the Bible say that? Why do we believe what we believe? And so I set out on this series to ask and answer a few questions. If you weren't here last week, the message is on our podcast. I started a little bit soft. I started with a couple of questions. Why is my Bible so hard to understand and why do bad things happen to good people? You can have a listen to those message, that message if you missed that. Today I want to look at a couple more questions, a few questions. Not the topics you'd normally hear in a sermon. In fact, I don't think I've ever preached on any of these three things before and it's okay to change things up sometimes. So I'm going to ask and attempt to answer a few questions today. So the first question I'm going to ask and answer today is, is gambling a sin? I don't know if you've ever wondered that question. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands who had a lazy bet on some of the football last night or anything like that. I was at a street uh, party. We, our, our street in, in, the, in Jordan Springs, we have a every Christmas party where you Close the street off, and all the neighbours come, and we eat great food and chat. And the, the number of bets that were on various sports events that were being discussed over the, the weekend was, was interesting. So, on the surface, it's a really easy question to answer gambling, according to the Bible, is not a sin. The Bible doesn't say gambling is a sin. There's nothing specifically wrong with gambling itself. However, there's always a "butt, right? Everyone's got a butt. Some butts are bigger than other butts, and some butts are more important than other butts, but we've, there's always a "but. Stop it. The Bible warns us to stay away from the love of money. And scripture also encourages us to stay away from get-rich-quick schemes. But both of those things can apply to many areas of our life, not just the issue of gambling. If I have a sin to repent of this week, I would like it to be that I successfully got rich quick. That would be an okay sin to repent from this week. I wouldn't mind repenting from that one. See, but gambling can be focused around a love of money. And undeniably, it tempts people with the promise of quick and easy riches. It's a a tough issue in that, if done in moderation or only on occasion, it is a waste of money, but it isn't necessarily evil. And people waste money on all sorts of things all the time. Gambling is no more or less a waste of money than purchasing a worthless item that you didn't need and didn't really even want at the same time, the fact that money is wasted on lots of other things doesn't make it okay to be wasting money on gambling just because it's no worse or better than anything else in particular. Money shouldn't be wasted. That's a topic for another day. Some people say, and no one in this room I know, it's other churches, say, but I'm gambling to make money for God's kingdom. I'm going to win a lot of money and I'm going to give it to God. Stop lying to yourself for a start. You'd be way better off giving the money that you lose each week in the offering. It would produce a much better outcome. Secondly, and I guess the real issue is, gambling can lead to addiction. We know that. We know that it's an absolute Horrible part of society and rips families to shreds. We know it destroys relationships. We know people can lose absolutely everything when the evil gambling spirit takes hold of them and they can't break free from that. The big issue for us as Christians becomes the love of money and gambling can play into that. Don't get me wrong for a second, I love money. I love having money, and I dislike it firmly when I don't have enough of it, but I don't love m- money more than I love God. And I try to be wise and generous with my money. That's not what the verse is talking about when it says don't love money or that a love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I was going to look at that question during this series, as why does church always want my money, but I decided not to. But the flashcard answer is this. Church doesn't want your money, God does because it reveals where our heart is and he asks us to give a portion of it to the church. Okay, back to gambling. Would I like to win $100 million? Absolutely I would. I would even give 10% of it to the church. I'm pretty generous. I'm your pastor. I'd probably double tithe and give you 20% of it. Do I buy lottery tickets? No, I don't. So I'm not going to win $100 million unless you buy me a ticket that's a winner. If you buy a ticket and it wins, feel free to give it to me. I would happily receive that. Do I gamble at a casino? No, I don't. Do I play poker with my mates? Yeah, I do. So one of the hang-ups that I had around this whole issue was actually a problem of the way my parents raised me. It was around the idea of raffle tickets. And and, and Christians have a whole kind of, you're either for or against this whole thing of raffle tickets and my mum always instilled in me you never buy a raffle ticket it's gambling and so I I kind of grew up in parenting in this whole thing of raffle tickets are gambling but then I've got kids and my kids go to school and play for sports teams where we get raffle books home fairly regularly and so I've got this conflict of what do I do with these things I can't go selling them to people at church what will they think of me so we end up buying the whole lot ourselves and never win anything I'm guessing a lot of parents <laughs> in the room do that. So, would I buy a raffle ticket to support my local school or club? Absolutely, I would. However, given how many Christians have issues with it, I wouldn't bring it to church to sell. So, here's the take home I'm done with gambling. Gambling itself is not a sin. Our use of money can be a sin. And gambling opens the door to many other issues. Let's have a heart-to-heart for a moment, church. If you struggle with gambling, please get some help. Please talk to someone. There are plenty of phone numbers and and things that you can do to get help. All right, ready for another one? Can Christians drink alcohol? Yes. This wasn't a feedback moment, Dita, but good to know where you stand on the issue, my friend. So communion today is real wine. Uh, We have an option of red, white, and there's a whiskey there. Um, Morning tea? No, we won't go there this morning. Again, this is a really quick answer in so many ways. The answer is simply, yeah, Christians can drink alcohol. There's nothing wrong with alcohol at all. In itself, in fact, the Bible actually encourages the use of alcohol in many passages. But let's understand that in context, right? Alcohol, was wine, was medicinal back in those days. The water was full of bacteria and and disease and was often dirty and they couldn't drink a lot of the water. And so they would drink wine at meals often as a substitute for drinking the water. Now, when you're thinking wine and Bible times, don't think about it as the nice $3 bottle of red wine you've got at home. They, the, the, the quantity of alcohol that was in their wine versus what's in ours, completely different. Theirs was closer to grape juice than it is to the red wine that we drink today. So when the Bible's talking about alcohol... And, and Jesus turning water into wine and, and, and all of those things. In fact, there's a passage where Paul encourages Timothy, he says, mate, you've got an upset stomach. For goodness sake, start drinking wine. He's not talking about the bottle that you would have at home necessarily, right? So we're clear on that. First miracle Jesus ever did was water to wine. It's a good place to start. Psalm 104, verse 14 to 15 states that God gives wine that makes glad the heart of men. So, when we consider beginning to end the Bible, the Bible has absolutely no issue with alcohol in itself. What the Bible has an issue with is what we do with it. There are so many passages that talk about drunkenness. Let me be crystal clear. This is not a grey area, this is not open to interpretation, this is not the word in Greek means something different to the word in English and you've got a get out of jail free card. The Bible says drunkenness is a sin. It's wrong, it's a sin, it's wrong, it's a sin. Am I clear? Have we got me? There's no grey area. Scripture, unfortunately, in many regards, also forbids us as Christians from doing anything that might offend other Christians. Did you know that? If something about our life causes someone else to sin, that's an issue. We might be really comfortable with drinking alcohol, but it might cause a problem for someone else. And the Bible would tell us, "Well, if that's the case, don't do it." In fact, let me read you those verses. You'll find them in one Corinthians chapter eight, nine to thirteen. It's in context of food. That's been offered to idols and some Christians were eating it and other Christians. Anyway, this is the verse. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer from whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. The principle from that verse is quite a simple one. We might not have an issue with drinking. Some other Christians do. And if my belief around the use of alcohol is indifferent to someone else's and I'm encouraging them to drink even though they think it's wrong, I haven't sinned against them. The verse says I've sinned against God. In light of these principles, it's going to be extremely difficult for any Christian To argue that they're drinking alcohol in excess for the glory of God. I got drunk last night, but it was just to give God the glory. I worship God by getting drunk. It's just how I do it. Do I drink alcohol? Yeah, I do. In fact, I can't think of a single pastor that I know that doesn't, just quietly. Would I have alcohol at a church event? Some of you are looking like, please say yes, Please say yes. Please say yes. No, I wouldn't. While I might have a healthy attitude around alcohol, while you might have a healthy attitude around alcohol, many people don't. And it could be a problem for others, and it could cause another to sin. Quite possibly. It can be an issue for people. So it's better just to say we just don't do that in a formal church setting. I guess the issue, again, it's like the alcohol and the the gambling thing. It's not necessarily the object that's the issue. It's what we do with it. It's how we use it. It's what it looks like to other people. It's often not the act that is the sin, but the beliefs or behaviours that have led us to that act or the outcome of that act. So let me, for a moment, talk to some of the youth and young adults in the room. Just because alcohol is okay doesn't necessarily mean it's something that we want to get involved with. And if we do, we shouldn't really be doing it to excess. And I think that's actually probably a pretty good principle for most of life. Excess of things that aren't bad for us can become bad for us. Too much of a good thing can become a bad thing quite quickly. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is what are our motivations for this or what are the outcomes of this? If you're being honest and wise with those questions, it'll probably keep you in a pretty safe place. 1 Corinthians 10.23 says this. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. There's a lot that we're allowed to do, but not all of it is good for us. And not all of it is beneficial for us. And so when it comes to making decisions on particular behaviours, ask yourself, is this good for me or not? Is this beneficial for me or not? Am I causing a problem for those that are around me by my behaviours and my choices? Alright, gambling done. Alcohol done. Let's hit a bit more of a theological Bible-based one this morning. Are you okay? Is this helpful? At least you know where your pastor stands and what I'd like for Christmas now. So my question now becomes how can a loving God send anyone to hell how about that question this morning being feeling a bit braver this morning than I was last week how can a God who loves us who loves everybody send anyone to hell have you ever wondered that no one few people It's a potentially explosive question. If you don't struggle with that question in particular, I guarantee you know people that do. They may not have voiced it to you. I guarantee you there are numerous people in this room that struggle with that exact question. Many of my friends, in talking about faith and and things like that, would say this is their number one issue. And by the way, they're Christians. If God punishes people with hell, how can he be loving? How can he possibly be good? Now, I don't have scope in this message this morning, or to be honest with you, I don't have the desire this morning to delve into the depths of the current Christian debate on this topic. But it would be remiss of me this morning not to point out that there is a growing body of Christian thought and literature that would say God wouldn't punish sin like that. For an increasing number of people, including some significant theologians, world-famous theologians, hell does not exist. At least not in the sense that it's a place that as Christians we can go, or as people that we can go. So there are two schools of thought at that point. Firstly, those who don't accept relationship with God through Jesus will simply cease to exist at judgment. They would use verse Just like we would use the verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For them, perishing is ceasing to exist. Death is final. Eternal life is available. But eternal punishment is not. Secondly, there's a group who would contend that in the end, everyone makes it to heaven anyway. Love wins out over sin. Sin. There are rewards for those who have followed Jesus and our experience of life here on earth is so much better having lived it in the kingdom than living outside of it. As I said, this is not the time or place to explore those ideas this morning. But if we're going to ask the question, it's only fair of me to mention alternative views. It's not just a case of dismissing those views out of hand. Theologically speaking, both cases can be argued from scripture depending on your interpretation of certain passages and that's the problem that we often have in theology, we, someone can read one thing and think it means something else and someone can interpret it in an entirely different way. And on top of that, I don't know about you, but I would desperately love either of those options to be true. I would love it to be true that everyone gets to heaven regardless. I would love it to be that there isn't a fiery pit of eternal judgment called hell that people who haven't accepted Christ I would love that not to be the case. I would love that position to be true, but just because I want it to be true doesn't necessarily mean it is true. Today, I'll reaffirm my belief in the Christian Orthodox position and I'll look at how a good God can punish sin. So how can it be true that God who is loving would send someone to hell? Here's the key thought for this today. So that you don't miss it. I like to point out the key thought. If you're taking notes, this would be a good thing to begin with. It could be true that God is loving and seemingly cruel at the same time. It could be true that he is loving and compelled to act in a way that doesn't seem loving. So I haven't got that one up there. Okay. So it could be true that God is loving and seemingly cruel at the same time. And it could be true that he is loving and compelled to act in a way that does not seem loving. I'd like to give you this morning a a couple of brief suggestions of why that is the case. Just because God is loving doesn't mean he loves everything. There are some things that God doesn't love. In fact, there are some things that God absolutely hates. God doesn't love murder or abuse, or selfishness, or pride. Actually, if he is loving, it's important that he doesn't love those things. It wouldn't be very loving of God to look at something like child abuse and say, well, I'm not really bothered by that. It's because God loves that there are a lot of things that God does not love. So firstly, God is loving, Yet he doesn't love everything. And because this loving God doesn't love everything, he does something about the things that he does not love. And that's good news. We've all got an inbuilt sense of justice, right? We don't like seeing people get away with things. I don't like it when I switch on the news and someone who has done something I think is absolutely awful walks away without a charge. Or gets a slap on the wrist for something that I think deserved so much more. It's good news that people who mistreat other people are not allowed into this perfect kingdom of God's, they're shut out. It's loving of a just God to hate and punish wrongdoing so that only perfect things are allowed in his perfect kingdom. Not many of us have an issue with the idea of famous bad people ending up in hell. I have no issue with many of the people who show up on the news regularly at night ending up facing judgment. The issue is it actually leaves a problem for us as well. Because none of us are perfect. None of us have treated God or each other in the perfect way That we're intended to do. If I'm being honest this morning, I've I've not always treated people as I should. I've hurt people, I've ignored their needs. Haven't always treated God as I should as my maker and my creator, as the ruler in charge of my life. So I deserve punishment for the things that I've done wrong too. We actually all deserve to be punished. And I guess right there is the heart of the Christian message. There's a perfect God. Who hates sin. And there's this group of people, you and me, who have free will, and unfortunately, we sin. And the consequences of that sin is punishment from God. That's what the cross is about. That's why Jesus came into eternity and stepped into time to do something about the punishment that should be ours. It's not an easy thing to hear that we deserve punishment. I don't like hearing it. I don't even like saying it. But it doesn't change the fact that I have sinned. I have made mistakes. I have done things wrong. I have caused issues. And as a result of that, I deserve to be punished. It's not something that Jesus would say lightly or flippantly or without caring. He doesn't say it to scare us. He says it to warn us and to help us see how amazing his offer of help really is. Because this is the amazing news. Even though we all deserve punishment, even though we deserve to go to hell, Jesus, God himself, has provided a way out for us. He doesn't do this by leaving things unpunished. He does it by taking our place, by taking that punishment on himself. He does it by taking the judgment that was due for us upon his shoulders. And when he's on the cross in that moment of death, he uttered some words that it, Christians who have been to Easter services their whole lives will know intimately well. My father, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus took our sin upon his shoulders and received our punishment, God turned his back on Jesus. Jesus experienced hell so that you and I would not need to experience hell. He paid the price so that you and I would not need to pay the price. That's how a loving God can punish sin by taking it and putting it upon his own son's shoulders. So that you and I today can accept the free and loving gift that our God gives us and say, God, thank you for the cross. Worship team, you can come and join me. It seems to me that a truly loving God loves the world enough to punish wrongdoing and he loves people enough to take that punishment upon himself. And he loves us enough to give us a choice. And we can ask him to be part of our lives and avoid the consequences of hell and look forward to enjoying his perfect and eternal kingdom. Realise this is a much bigger topic than... I have time to address this morning and it's something that, if it's something you've struggled with, I encourage you to do some research. If you want to talk more about that with me, I am welcome to have a conversation around that. And this topic is also the reason that we should be continuing to love people enough to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them the reason we should continue to try and reach the world around us because Jesus loved us enough to take our punishment upon his shoulders and that's the good news of the gospel, it's the good news of the kingdom of God, Jesus paid the price that we could not pay and did what we could not do he made a way where there was no way God we thank you for the cross We thank you for the price paid by our Saviour. God, I thank you that you are a loving God. You are a just God. That God, you took that punishment that was ours upon your shoulders. God, I thank you for the freedom we have this morning in that. I thank you that we can worship you with freedom today because... God, you've dealt with that burden of set upon our lives. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org. www.cofcpenrith.org.